what uh, what was your brother doing all this time that you were merged in the Whitfield world? So during that time, my brother had a a, a life and death experience, and he gave himself to the Lord and became a minister, and moved out of L.A. and moved up to um, San up to Oakland, San Jose area, and in uh, um, and then he just he, you know his whole life changed. And then later on, <clears throat> in the mid '90s, my brother became the largest worship leader in the world. He had the, in 1990, I believe it was '92, he had the largest selling praise and worship album in the history of the record business at that time. Because when I was looking up your information, I saw he had, um, maybe he had others, but he had one in '96, "Center of My Joy." Yeah, I'm singing on that with him. Okay. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, he in 1990 he had his he had his first hit album. In '92, he came out with an album called "Lift Him Up," and that was at that time there had never been a praise and worship album album that had sold, that it went gold, right? There had been, there had been single records, praise and worship single records that it went gold, but never an album that went gold. And then his his album, Lift Him Up, became the largest selling, uh, uh, it, it was the largest selling praise and worship album in the history of the record business. And then also he, he had a video, a live video that also went gold. And then, uh, um, uh, uh, and to this day, he's still he's still out ministering and traveling all over the way. He's all he's all over the world now. So, you must have been uh, proud of his little brother, though, when you were doing the uh, Whitfield stuff. You know what? He 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 was he was you know um, yeah he was because I, I guess of the so my mom had six boys, three of us. Are professional. Three of us took took our music to the professional level. The other the other three were never serious about it, and so so uh, I was the first one. He was the first one to have a hit record, but it was again it was a regional hit record in L.A. I was the first one to to be on that level with you know Norman Whitfield level work with a legend like that. And then, and then later on, my baby brother Craig, who's also is a bass player and a singer, uh, he he worked with he played with Maxwell and Tevin Campbell, and um, he was part of that Quincy Jones family of creativity. And so, um, Quest Records, huh? Quest Records, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So. He did that thing, and then he had then he had his own single that was kind of a a hit in the Bay Area uh, later on later on after that. But or prior to that, oh my gosh, uh, which was which is ironic. He had a group. Um, he had a group called the Young Bucks that came out of Oakland, came out of East Oakland, and the Young Bucks was so good. They came down from, excuse me. They came down from 
from Oakland and got involved in that same contest that my brother was in. This is like 15 years later, right? 50, this is like 80, when did they do this? It had to be 85, 86-ish. The Young Bucks came from Oakland, got in that KGFJ Soul Search. I don't think it was sponsored by KGFJ anymore. I think it was sponsored by another radio station, but it was the essentially the same thing. And they won it. They won it. My brother, my baby brother's group won the contest. They won, they won a record deal with um oh with AM. Yeah. They won a record deal with AM and uh so uh, I don't know what I, I don't know exactly what happened with the project, but I, I was we, we were all proud of them. We were all proud of them, and they were they were funky too. They were kind of like a they were like kind of like a, a a more stay in the time kind of a funk with what with better vocals because there's three of them that are like killer vocalists, you know. That sounds so, pretty, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah, the Young Bucks. Yeah. So, Mark, how and why did uh, your, you know, Whitfield experience come to a close? Well, my my Whitfield experience came to a close in like uh, like the summer of '83 ish when we when when. Uh, our record came out and we couldn't figure out what was going on with the with with the record um with the label we couldn't figure out what was going on with warner brothers whitfield was a subsidiary of warner brothers warner's had a deal where whatever whatever norman recorded with uh, uh, whatever norman recorded warner's would market manufacture and distribute it right and so monster fun came out like uh 82 ish 82 and it it took off took off pretty good in this in the south in texas up to the up the mississippi river to like tennessee all the way across to the atlantic it took off. It's getting a rotation on on the play, but we wouldn't hear nothing on the West Coast. Just barely a little bit in San Francisco, nothing in LA. And we were we couldn't figure out what was going on. And we kept getting promoters. We got with this one particular promoter from Nashville kept calling and inviting Mamatapi to come down to do a, a show with with uh, uh, with Clear, uh, uh, not DeBar, yeah, Switch, Clear, Switch, uh, Frankie Smith, and the Barquets, and they wanted us to be on that show. And we tried to figure out how we're gonna do this with, we, we, you know, uh, we wasn't getting any support from the from either label, from Whitfield or from Warner Brothers. We didn't know what was up, so we tried to book a tour by ourselves, and we learned a valuable lesson. 
never try to do anything without the support of the record company. Never try to do anything with the support of the record company. We went out on the road. We had a great show. Our show was great. But the whole band, we got stuck out there in Florida after we tried to, we, in, in our tour, we booked, we booked like about, I don't know, nine or 10 dates and things didn't go well at all. And we ended up getting stuck. The whole band had an eight piece band and two roadies. We got stuck in a hotel room in Miami, Florida, trying to get back home. Actually, we're not Miami. We were in Fort Lauderdale and couldn't get home and ended up there for 10 weeks. And um, it, it was pretty it was pretty bad. And finally, um, there was a guy from um, William and Morris Agency who had been courting courting us uh, already. A guy named Ron Russell. And, um, you know, he found out about what was happening with us and he called Don Taylor. Don Taylor was the manager for um, um, uh, Bob Marley. He was Bob Marley's manager, personal manager. And Don Taylor came and met us at the Days Inn in Fort Lauderdale. He came and met us in the lobby and we told him the story, just everything that happened. To him. We had a roadie. We had a roadie who got high and turned over a van and got hospitalized and we couldn't make the next gig and just all kind of just just junk happened. And so Don Taylor got us back home to to LA. He gave us gave us a couple of credit cards and got us back home. He was very generous. Rented us a, like a 15 passenger Dodge van and we drove after after like 10 weeks in a hotel room in Fort Lauderdale. He got us back home and then we just couldn't seem to, uh, that, that, that event dis disillusioned the whole band. Like it was eight of us, Kenny Scott left to go on a road with, uh, with, with Rick James, we had Kenny Scott in the group. Um, Buster Brown, the trumpet, the other trumpet player, he was, um, he was uh, Norman's nephew. Um, then we had a saxophone player, Steve Nieves. Uh, he went out with Jakarta, which was a Motown act. Um, Izzy Martin took a job working at Edison and didn't want to do it no more. Walter was so disillusioned, he stopped playing and it just left me and Chucky Burke, Chucky was the drummer, and Victor Nix. Victor, Victor Nix had came out on the road with Mamatapi, although he was originally in Rolls Royce, but he came out on the road with Mamatapi. And we just, it, it was just, the, the band was disillusioned that down in the South, we were, we were big. We had, a, we had a, a really good following. People knew who we were. Our record was like number one in the Southeast but nowhere else, nowhere else. And so the band just got really disillusioned when we got back to LA and we just never gigged again. You know, it was, it was a really rough time. And of course there were 
of course, there were women involved, everybody's wives and boy girlfriends saying, no, you're not doing that anymore. No, you can't do that anymore. And then, you know, and then, and of course, that breaks up the chemistry. You know, that breaks up the chemistry and nobody had the, the energy. Um, nobody had the energy to follow up on it. And, and Norman was going through his demons during that time. You know, Norman had his own weaknesses and demons that just kind of was was causing the downfall of the label. And, and, and really, um, that was what, you know, that, that disillusionment is what started everything to fall. So um, eventually I went back to working in Orange County with some other bands. I worked with some some pretty good bands during that time. I worked with the, the Cats and Jammer band out of Orange, out of Long Beach. And then I worked with the, a group called The Craze, which was probably the second best group I ever been in in my life but I couldn't get all of these guys on the same page to go after a record deal because we were we were good. I mean, we were as good as any group, any of those those uh, those those pop groups from the eighties. Um, um, but but the guys just weren't interested. Once again, it was it was with a bunch of guys who were just not interested in doing anything more than just playing in bars and playing in clubs and. I can never get everybody on the same page. So, and and it so it, it all just kind of drifted away. Guys start having babies and getting married and all those all those things that you know. Life moved on. Life moved on, and women saying, "Why don't you get a real job?" You know, <laughs> all those things happen, and uh, and that and it just kind of all fell apart. I always thought it was, it would happen again. Um, it's happening in a different way for me now, but, um, did you, did you stay in touch with Norman Whitfield at all after it? Not really, not really. Um, um, I, you know, I, I am, I'm another one of those who had a woman who was kind of demanding and, you know, uh, I kind of fell under that. I mean, there was there was some delusionment, disillusionment on my side, and I just kind of drifted away. I just kind of drifted away from Whitfield Records after that. And it was, you know, um, I, I, you know, the single map, the single Monster Fund was my song, and it was hitting. It was really lit. I was really literally. It was trying to hit, and for some reason, it just. It just didn't take off any more than that whole Southeast region. And I didn't understand that I could have organized something and still went out and done something. Uh, I could have went out and done something, you know, uh, just worked that region under that song. But I didn't understand that in those days. My, my anticipation was for something bigger. And then when Walter left, uh, Walter had some health reasons also. And Walter left and Izzy left. We were the three of us were the driving force behind the group. And when they left and the group just fell apart, and I realized that we'd never have that same chemistry again, it just 
it, it took the wind out of our sails. I was just going to say that same phrase. <laughs> um, Nick's, did Nick's ever go on tour? Did he tour with Rolls Royce? I think he did in the early days. Because I'm just thinking if he had like that sort of first class touring experience and then was on this sort of nightmarish situation you guys had, that must have been really rough for him because he knew what it was like when it was done right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he really he really did the Mammoth Tappy thing as a favor to me because he, he and I lived in the same neighborhood. Like I was in Linwood and he was a few blocks away in Compton where, where uh, you know, where we lived and we used to ride to the studio together. So he and I got really tight. So when we, when, when Mamatapi decided to go out and we realized that because Walter was such a dynamic front man, Walter would come out from behind the organ and come out front and dance and jump around and scream and holler. And Walter was just amazing. We needed to have somebody else good keyboard player who could, you know, hold down that keyboard part. So Victor Victor did that as a as a um as a favor to me to play with Mamatapi for that. We only did that one tour, you know, and it turned out to be disastrous. And it just, you know, just took the winds out of say we just nobody wanted to do it anymore after that, you know. I I, I did, but other factors was were playing. So, did did uh, is there anything else you can say about um, Norman Whitfield's demons that you mentioned? Was did he have a substance issue at that time, or what? What happened? Norman Norman didn't have a substance problem. Norman had a gambling problem, mm-hmm. and that's really that's really what brought the label down that's that's what i think brought the label down you know and i don't i don't want to i don't want to talk about it more than that but norman norman never had a while i was with him he never had a substance problem in fact he he uh, um um he, he wouldn't even allow substance in the studio yeah i remember you saying that so yeah. he um, wouldn't even, you know I mean, guy snuck it in there when he wasn't there, but never while he was there, you know. Well, gambling's no joke either. Just ask Pete Rose. So, <laughs> you know. So, um, so uh, bring us up to speed. What you're doing now, Mark, and uh, what your life is about today. All right. Today, <clears throat> uh, I got several things that I'm doing. I'm still doing music. First of all, I am a worship leader at at a church, Fremont Community Church in uh, Fremont, California. I am the supervisor of the music department at the moment. Um, I'm also, I also own a recording studio and label in Santa Clara, which I'm sitting in right now. And, uh, it's called Canola Music. I have uh, currently, we're small label, but I recently just just signed and produced a group called the Gospel Hummingbirds, which is a Grammy-nominated group that's been around for a long time. Uh, 
old school quartet gospel. Um, that's what they have been, but I'm changing the image in the process of the new album is getting ready to come out any minute. And it's, it's very good. I'm, I, I hate to always hate to sound like I'm bragging, but this is really good music. It's really, really good. The, the gospel hummingbirds had, had always been like a, a old school, um, shuffle style gospel quartet group. And, and when I sat down with them and agreed to produce their new album, they came to me and asked me to produce their new album. And I agreed to produce it. I, I, I told the, the leader of the group's name is James Gibson. I told James, I said, hey, listen, James, if I'm gonna do this, we wanna make something that's a little more updated so that you can expand your audience, right? You guys have been doing the same style of music since 1961, right? James hadn't been in the group that long. The, the, all of the original members have passed on, but James took over in the 1990s and he's now the leader of the group and they're still doing the same music. And I said, let's update it. Let's, let's do something because the audience that loved that style way back in the, in the 60s, most of those people have passed on and we got to reach a, a new audience. So you're going to have to do some new things, some fresh things. You know, the Bible says God is doing a new thing. You need to follow him doing a new thing to reach an updated audience. So um, James agreed and he allowed me to take the creative control on this project. And it's really good. In fact, the birds have told me that this is the best album they've ever done. And they're pretty excited about it. And so we, I literally just finished doing the final mix on the last song last night. I remember uh, from when I initially spoke to you, you said you were trying to, you're working on a project and trying to get it to a certain place for us to have this conversation. Right. I, li I literally did the last mix last night. And it's really, really good. It, so is, it, is it all like a wine-ins kind of thing or is it different or? Uh, it, it, it's, you could probably similar to say it's like a whining thing, but it's a little, it's a little funkier, a little swingier than that. You know? Rodney Franklin or something. Yeah. He, so, so James likes to say that we are the gospel temptations, right? Cause the, the birds can sing. They're a bunch of old guys who can sing. They can really sing. I was like, dang, you do some. Hot, y'all got skills, you know, and so, um, so yeah. I, what I'll do is when I, once I get this stuff copyrighted, I'll send you a copy. I'll send you a copy of please do uh, of the couple of songs. So I'd love to get your feedback on on them. Looking forward. But I also have this twelve-year-old Indian girl, right. Oh my gosh, this little girl got soul. Oh, she's got soul. Her name is Srinidhi Muriganda. And um, she, she, she started off as a vocal student with me when she was nine years old. And I start teaching her, you know, my vocal technique from my experience with Norman. Like every stuff I, stuff I learned about singing from being in the studio with Norman watching him produce all those vocal groups, Masterpiece and Rolls Royce and all that. And, and of course, uh, Mammoth Tappy also. 
uh, I put that into a curriculum. I've created a curriculum where I teach uh, I teach people how to sing. And this little girl came to me when she was nine years old, and now I've turned her into an artist. She's a she's an artist. She released her first album uh, last year, and uh, it's it's really good. It's it's poppy, and it's it's got a little bit of Christian pop in it also. And she's uh, she's really really gifted, really really gifted. She's my she's my top student. I'm very proud of her, and I'm looking forward to. Uh, to uh, doing her her next project, does, does, and, she, and, and, does she have an accent or does she sound American? This girl sound like a little Shaka Khan, great no. okay? Indian girl, Indian girl from India, right? She's like a, a she's like a little shock. She's real petite, little tiny little thing, but oh my gosh, can she sing? She is really gifted. And um, and her project, I can send you. I can send you. You'll you'll like it. You'll like it. It's 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 pop and Christian gospel. A couple of songs that we did. So uh, a couple of years ago, um, I wrote a song for. I, I got really moved by a presentation I saw on human trafficking, right? And I felt like really convicted that God wanted me to do something. What can I do? Well, all I do is write music and produce music. So I wrote a song for uh, to inspire people, excuse me, to inspire people to get involved with human trafficking, right? To do something, to stand up, you know, take take a stand into this fight because this is wrong. Two over, you know, almost two hundred years after slavery has been abolished, there's still 3 million slaves in the United States. That shocked me. I had no idea. So I wrote this song called Love Never Fails. And this little girl had been doing so well on her, in her voice lessons at the time, uh, I decided to let her sing the song. So she heard it. She loved it. Her parents loved it. So we put it, we, we, you know, had her record it and we I finished the production. We put it out, right? The people from a ministry called uh, Abolition Radio heard the song, called us and asked her to come sing the song at the Alameda County Fair here in the Bay Area. She came out, tiny little thing opens her voice, her voice is big, big, she's big, flexing voice. She's like, you know, anyway, everybody was blown away. So they invited her to come on a radio station and do a live interview. This is after she sang at the, at the thing. Well, she couldn't make it. So I, I went, uh, while I was doing the live radio interview, they announced that they were going to use her song as the theme song to their radio station to the radio show, right? So now my little 12 year old little girl is singing every week on the radio, got her voice singing and, and you know, most 12 year olds don't get stuff like that happen, you know? Sure. Um, the and the, her album is doing okay. We haven't, we haven't done a full marketing thing on it yet. We're working on that or how we're gonna market this and, and get it to the market, but the album is done. And um, 
and it, it's it's really good. I wrote a I, I have a tendency to write message songs. You know, I'm 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 writing a lot of songs about improvement of mankind. Let's 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 be better. Let's do let's do better. We're we're people who are passionate and who love. Let's do better. Let's do each other better. Let's do better for each other and to each other. So she was telling me sometime during uh, last year that she was having some problems with some kids because she, she's she's a, she's in junior high now. She's like in the seventh grade and she was having problems with, uh, and she's real petite and she was having problems with some kids bullying her. So I wrote a message song to the bully called, uh, I know you have something better to do, right? It's a great song. It kind of, um, um, and she kills on it. She absolutely kills on it. It kind of sounds like a, um, it kind of has a feel kind of like a, um, um, what's the redhead kid um, from from Ireland? Uh, Scott. Red. Mick, uh, Mick, Mick Huckdale? No, no, the new kid, the kid that's out. Oh, oh um, yeah. Sheeran. Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran, yeah. Yeah, it kind of has a feel, kind of like his, like, a, like a one of his songs. This, uh, um, it's it's really nice song, really really nice song, and she kills on it. She kills on it, and then a couple of uh, a couple of funky little uh, some, some funky gospel kind of a message thing in it, and it's it's really it, it's really it's a really nice album, especially for a twelve year old. You know, so. are, are you keeping your bass chops up? I am. Uh, one of the things I'm doing is, uh, in fact, I'm doing a show this May 18th in uh, in uh, Carmel, California, coming up here in a couple of weeks, uh, where I'll actually be sharing the bass. With, I, I call it Bass by Committee, where my, me and my baby brother are both going to play bass on this gig, and we're both going to sing also. So we're gonna we're just gonna switch off. He'll play on the songs I sing. I'll play on the songs he sings. And also, I, I play in church every week. I'm a, as as a worship leader. Uh, I, I I pretty much play in church every week. So I'm doing that. And then I got local gigs around here. I get guys calling me and say, "Hey man, can you come play with us on, you know, April 12th?" Yeah, I can do that. Let's go. Do that in this area. So I'm keeping my bass chops up. And how can, how can uh, people keep up with you? Um, I have a website, cannolimusic.com. And uh, also, if you want to just, uh, I got uh, my Facebook page is really a good way to keep in touch with me. And, um, and also, um, I have a Cannoli music at gmail.com. So those three, those are the three ways, the three best ways to keep up with me. You know? Awesome. Mark, before we part ways, and I know we've gone way longer than we talked about, but that's the way these things go. You know, it's yeah. great stories and, and, and a good time. The time flies by. Um, but um, as we look back, if you take a look back on your professional recording career mm -hmm. um what would you say is the song or track that you're most proud of and, and why 
Golly, and so many of them. If I have to pick one, um, I had one. Um, this is after my Whitfield days. Um, one of the tragic things that happened was soon after I got married, my wife and I had a baby girl that died from sudden infant death. And uh, I wrote a song about the healing that God brought to me during that period. When, whenever, whenever you go through a traumatic experience like that, it leaves wounds, emotional wounds, and spiritual wounds, uh, and you have to get through them some kind of way. What I learned is that that Jesus never gave up on me. He never gave up on me. And, and I wrote a song about how people spoke. God sent, sent people to speak into my life when I was going through that emotional period. When you go through a, 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 an emotional tragedy like that, tragedy that leaves you so spent, uh, a lot, lots of people become self-destructive. Lots of people become self-destructive. And I used to wonder why do people always do stuff that gets them in trouble? And I found out that they've had some kind of trauma. A lot of people have severe trauma and they had left emotionally wounded. And so I wrote a song called, He Never Stops Lifting Me Up. And uh, uh, that song's on my, my website, by the way. He Never Stops Lifting Me Up. And I'm most proud about that song uh, because um, it, it was it it was the culmination of of my healing. It was me getting out what God done for me that delivered me through this really tough emotional time. I mean, my wife and I went through it for a long time, you know, she went through it longer than I did. Uh, for me, it was, you know, it was two or three years of just battling against self-destructiveness, doing things that I know I shouldn't do, but I, you know, I'm just emotionally tore up. My wife went through it for long. She went through it for about maybe about 15, 16 years before she got her, before her healing manifested. And as as God never stopped lifting me up, I tried my best to never stop lifting her up. And today we're doing really, really well. We've been married. In fact, this month will be our 30th anniversary that we've been married. And that and that happened in our second year of marriage. Well, actually, in our first year, year of marriage, if you really look at it, in our first year of marriage, we had a baby. Ah, second year of marriage because it was a year and a half after we got married that the baby died. So. Well, congratulations on the 30 years. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I'm pretty excited. I'm coming up Dude. on 20 myself pretty soon. Dude, congratulate. That's a victory. It's a victory in the United States because <laughs> there's an attack on marriages, you know, but yes, you know what? That's just 
I, I say blessings to you and continued success in in your your relationship and your marriage. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. And thank you for spending so much time with me and telling all these amazing stories, um, you know, about the music, about your life. Thank you Praise so much God. for opening up and sharing it with the Truth and Rhythm audience. It is, it is my honor. It truly is. Scott, you're a delightful man, and I'm so blessed and honored that you allowed me to be a part. Let's don't, let's don't be strangers. Absolutely. All right. God bless you, and thank you so much. Thank you, too, Mark. Bye for now. Hey, right back here at the Truth and Rhythm Mothership. There you have it. Yet another show that took it deeper than deep, uncovering not only an amazing, seldom discussed slice of classic 1970s funk and R&B, but also revealing an equally fascinating human interest story in the process. That's how we do it. You know it. Also, of course, it was a treat to gain an intimate perspective on Norman Whitfield. A huge thanks again to my terrific guest, Mr. Mark Canoli. Also, sincere thank you as always to you, the viewer and supporter of this program or listener of the program. Speaking of which, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube. It's where Truth and Rhythm lives and um, you don't want to miss out. Or you can subscribe to the podcast through a number of providers if you prefer the audio version. Also, write me, Scott G at funkinstuff.net. I want to hear from you. Just talk music. Let me know what you like, who else you'd like to see on the show. If you're a musical person yourself, by all means, pitch me being on the show. This is your program. You can help shape it, and I will respond. I promise you I will respond. And uh, with that, fellow music lovers, fellow funketeers, R&B and jazz lovers, as always, this is Scott Dr. Jiggs Goldfine saying, keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one.